Man, I, I know, uh, you know, I'm just a small part of your day, but I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. It means a lot to me and to everybody who listens. So, so thank you. Um, you ready to just go ahead and get started? Sure. All right, man. All right. It's 2022, and we have a brand new Tenuto podcast episode with an interview I did with Randall Standridge over the summer. I strategically didn't want to put this one out until now because he dropped so much knowledge, so many interesting facts that I wanted to re-release this, re-listen to this before the start of a new concert season. Um, And that's exactly where I think a lot of us music teachers are at right now. We're coming back from winter break. We all had winter concerts. Now we're getting ready for maybe that festival concert, maybe a spring concert that's coming our way. And I'm really excited to share this interview because Randall talks about programming concerts. He talks about the composition process, and he also shares so much more about his life that I'm really excited for you to listen to. I hope you enjoy. This is Randall Standridge. Thank you so much, Randall, for coming on. So my first question for you is, because I know you're an educator as well as a composer, what are some things that you think band teachers should be thinking about when they're programming a concert? Okay. Uh, Well, first of all, thank you for having me on your podcast. Um, And as far as what directors need to be thinking about when they're programming, um, I would say there's a few things. Um, So it's, and I don't think you can really boil it down to just one. Um, The first and most obvious needs to be the realistic ability of the ensemble that you're conducting. Um, Because ultimately, you you really have to walk that fine line between challenging a group so that it inspires growth. But then also uh, within the the time frame of the ability level group and the time frame that you have to prepare, you know, are they going to be successful? Because nobody wants to set performers up for failure. Um, nobody wants to cause themselves unnecessary stress. So I, I think that always needs to be the first consideration. Moving a step beyond that, um, for myself, and I, I really do think that my background as a composer and as a marching arts designer um, kind of contributes to me for this at least, in that I want a concert to have a very logical and organic flow. Um, I want it to take the listener on, and and performer for that matter, on some type of aesthetic journey. Um, You know, and and a lot of times it's it's easier to to do do that successfully than I think some people think. Um, Basically look at the pieces and, you know, do the pieces contrast in some meaningful way. You know, are some of the pieces slow and are some of the pieces fast? Um, are some of the pieces contemporary and are some of them a little bit more traditional? Um, you know, you think of things like this and you try to come up with an order and a logical flow that will, you know, just uh, be aesthetically pleasing and also just not be too much of the same. Right. Um, you know, like, I, don't get me wrong, I love concert marches, but I would not want to listen to an entire concert of them unless perhaps I was at a 4th of July thing, but that's, that's a whole other thing. Cause I'm going to have a beer <laughs> and, and you know, it'd probably be a little easier to sit through. Um, but other than that, you know, I think it really does need to have this kind of artistic intent behind it. Um, and then lastly, kind of going beyond that, um, 
you know, I think you also need to think as an educator and just be like, what are my students getting out of this? And that could be new rhythmic ideas. It could be reinforcement of certain keys or styles um, or kind of in the modern age we're living in, you know, are you exposing them to some type of uh, demographic or story that you think is really impactful and relevant for our current times? Um, I think all of these things can be considered uh, when we're thinking about programming. Absolutely. Yes, that's amazing. I, I love what you added there at the end. I was actually, before you hopped on our interview, I was just listening to your newest, or not maybe not newest, but one of your new pieces, Affirmation. Um, and I just love it, man. It's, it's fantastic. Um, you're very talented. Um, and that, that's a very, very amazing piece. Um, moving on here, I know you are currently, or maybe you're not anymore, but you were in Missouri, right? Giving a clinic. Oh yeah, that was yesterday. Uh, that was yesterday. Yeah, yeah. fortunately, uh, I live in Arkansas, and I mean, I live very close to the Missouri border. Okay. So it was just a day trip. I went up there, presented. Um, you know, got to meet with some directors, and then just came home because honestly, this time of year, I can't be away too too long because I do a lot of marching band design, and you have to meet deadlines. Right. So I was able to get away from the day, but today it was right back to work. Okay. Awesome. Well. I was really intrigued by the title of what you were doing. It's called Five Things You Can Do to Instantly Improve Your Band. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you talked about at this clinic? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Um, and a lot of these things, you know, unfortunately, I think a lot of directors are going to think these topics are boring. But I think sometimes the, the kind of traditional boring stuff really is the best. Yeah. Um, so the, the five things I talked about, the first was that um, I think if you can learn to address music literacy in a meaningful way in your rehearsals, um, whether it be reviewing key concepts. And I'm not talking about anything advanced or anything like that, but I'm, but I'm just speaking of like reminding students of what clefs do. And, you know, some people would laugh at me saying that, but I guarantee you that there are quite a few band students who have no idea what their actual function is. Um, you know, reviewing um, how those clefs um, place notes on the staff, both in treble and bass, for all of your players, so that we're not just creating, you know, uh, clef specialists where they only know one, you know, and um, so just kind of you know addressing music literacy um, is is one way. The second way, and this is a topic that I'm really passionate about, is that um, I think if you can learn to address practice technique in a meaningful way in your rehearsals, this is going to improve your band. Um, as I've traveled around the country and done a lot of clinics and worked with a lot of students, and even in my own experience with my band when I was a director, uh, one kind of bitter pill that I had to swallow was that I was initially not doing a great job of teaching my kids how to practice. Right. Um, I think all directors, you know, teach it or you know, indicate to their students that they should practice. There's a need for practice. We might even go as far as to assign them, you know, you need to practice these measures, this piece, whatever. But that's not the same as really sitting down with a student and saying, here is how to practice. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, what happens a lot with that is I think a lot of directors teach to the highest common denominator. And what I mean by that is, you know, you'll get these kids who are just naturally talented. Kids that, you know, we, I think we've all had that student that, you know, the first day of beginning band, you give them their instrument and by day two, they've come back and they have played the entire book. Yep. I know. We all get those kids. The, the problem is when we take the ego that we are responsible for that. We're not. What we are responsible for are, are for those kids who can't do that. Those kids that cannot 
um, conceptualize how practice should work, how all these things should work. Um, so if we're teaching to those kids and kind of teaching on their level, it's just going to improve our band. Um, so that um, so the second thing is teaching practice techniques and modeling them and being explicit with them in a second way. That's so true. And sorry to interrupt you, but like just what you said about like the ego thing is like, oh yeah, like I made that happen. And it's like, actually you're like, you need to be focusing on these kids who aren't getting it. Like it's not their fault that they're not getting it. You need to do a better job. I think, you know, that's a, that's a really good point. Well, exactly. Yeah. And we have to be careful about that. We can't let, you know, students who are naturally talented stroke our ego because right. you know, um, I tell people you really can't measure the success of a band by its best or, you know, its most highest achieving musicians measure from the middle down what the director is doing for those students. To me, that's the real measure of a program. Um, but that's just my opinion, you know? Um, so uh, moving on to the, uh, to kind of the third thing is learning to address um, what I call instrument theory in a meaningful way. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of band directors have that go-to that we always say, you know, like with our wind players, we always say more air, more air, more air, which, which is correct. I mean, we do need more air, but I guess for myself, I like to be a little bit more direct than that. So like with my brass players, you know, yes, we work on breathing. We work on that, but we would also really focus on buzzing and not just, I mean, not just the fact that they should buzz, but drawing their attention to it. Because ultimately, you know, for brass, for example, where does the sound come from? It comes from the buzz. It does not come from the air. Right. Now, is the air important? Yes. The air is the fuel that drives the buzz. Yeah. But if the but if the rest of the buzz is not happening, if there's not attention to mouth shape, if there's not attention to lip tension, um, lip angle, you know, do you feel enough buzz coming through here? If the student is only focusing on their lungs and not really thinking about their lips, that's a problem. Um, you know, so they need to focus on that. Same thing with reed players. You know, reed players focus so much on putting more air, but what, you know, they need to focus on how, you know where is the reed? How is my embouchure in relationship to the reed? Because I'm sure you've experienced this. Most young reed players do not put enough reed in their mouth, and their tone is terrible. Right. Yeah. And all it takes is, is like, you know, it's like, you know, if you move in about two centimeters on that read, you're going to sound amazing. And that's all it takes. But we, so we, you know, waste our time just talking about air all the time. Air is important, but so is all the rest of the stuff. Then beyond that, um, I think, you know, when, when I talk about instrument theory, the biggest way that I addressed instrument theory besides the, the tone aspects was I invested a lot of time with my students on the chromatic scale at the full range of the instrument. So, um, you know, the woodwind players, we'd be able to, to um, play the entire range, not quickly. I mean, I'm not asking for, uh, you know, flight of the bumblebee, but, you know, I just wanted to be able to name all the notes, you know, by pitch name and do the finger position, sharps going up, flats going down. And they had to be able to do that for memory. And I didn't even care if the kids could read the notes or not, because to me, that is a completely separate skill from just knowing your instrument. It's so interesting that you bring that up because this is now, so I'm doing like this summer series of, of interviews and I'm just, you know, it's all about getting better for next year coming off this COVID year. And 
I think everybody who I've interviewed so far has talked about the importance of teaching the chromatic scale. And it's just yes. a theme that keeps coming back. And I, I, I'm realizing that, hey, I need to be doing a better job of that. So, Well, yeah, and but I think a lot of people want to wait until the kids can read those notes. You know, um, but, but I do not, because to me, knowing your instrument is totally separate from reading. Uh, this is a true story. When I my, my last several years when I was at Harrisburg, my beginning flute players, for example, uh, beginners, you know, first year would be able to play from the C below the staff to the F above the staff and back down chromatically from memory by the end of the first semester. Wow. Now, they could not read it. By the end of the first semester, they could probably read five notes. But to me, that was not the point, you know, and so um, so there's that. Um, brass players, I would always teach them what I call positions. You know how like with trombone players, you have first, second, third, fourth, whatever. Yeah. Um, what I love about positions for trombones is it teaches them how inharmonics actually work. Like it teaches them, you know, this going up a position makes it sharp, going down makes yeah, it flat. that's true. So, well, so but with like, you know, trumpet players, euphoniums and people like that, um, it's a little more abstract because it's like, okay, it's first finger, second finger. And it's a little harder to see that. So what I did to combat that with this uh, instrument theory approach is instead of just teaching trumpets, okay, this is open, this is second, this is, you know, one and two, I named them as positions. So it's like, you know, all, all valves open is first position. Middle finger is second position. Third finger is fourth position. I love that. Oh my so God. Excuse, excuse awesome. me. Yeah, excuse me. Uh, first finger is third position. One and two is fourth, or you know, or third valve is, is fourth. Um, two and three is fifth. One and three is sixth. And that's and so what what would happen is, you know, once the kids were more comfortable with the chromatic scale and doing that for my brass players, I could say, okay, brass, you know, one is the highest position, seven is the lowest position. Anytime we go sharp, we go up a position. Anytime we go flat, we go down a position. And it gave the kids just a tool for understanding how their instrument actually worked. Because that, I mean, that is what the valves do. It lowers it by a certain number of half steps. And I don't know why, I mean, I know for myself, I was like, why was I never teaching the kids this? You know, something they need to know. And so, um, so the third thing, just to recap, is, is this instrument. They're like, really teach the kids about their instruments. Um, the fourth thing um, is to really invest in student leadership. Mm. Uh, really invest in not just assigning leaders, but teaching them how to lead. And I think sometimes we get a little bit too romanticized with that, where it's like, we're trying to teach them to be good people. We're trying to teach them to be strong willed or whatever that to me for, I mean, yes, those are good qualities, but what I really need them to do, I need them to be able to run a rehearsal. And so being a good person does not make you able to run a rehearsal. Being strong willed does not make you, you know, do you know that we need to start with like taking four measures and really breaking it down to make sure everybody understands all the notes and rhythms, you know? And so I would invest time with my students doing that and to make sure that the, uh, the procedures were consistent from leader to leader and moment to moment. Um, and I also made sure that I was mimicking the exact same procedures as I was teaching the students in full ensemble. Yeah. So that there was a consistent expectation. So when you're um, talking about leadership for a second, did you have like, I know you, you said you had a beginning band and, and middle school band. Did you have like roles in your band? Like, I don't know, like a librarian or that kind of stuff leadership? Or are you talking more oh. about like being sectionals or both? Uh, both, both. I mean, there can be students that, you know, help out with the administration of the band in certain roles. Uh, then there, but, you know, there's also these students who, uh, 
who uh, you know need to run rehearsals, you know, whether yes. it be drum majors, section leaders, or whatever. Sure. And um, it you know it's it's just something that can really help a program, particularly uh, smaller programs where there might not be as many staff, um, as many adjunct uh, you know members um, to help out. Yes. Uh, so it, it's something that can just really um, Im improve the band. Yeah, yeah, I percent agree. Um, okay, cool. Well, thank you uh, for for giving up giving us the cliff notes there. Uh, no it was an amazing, amazing talk. Uh, so, so real quick, jumping on to something a little bit different. Um, percussion. You program or you you write amazing percussion parts. I love it. I actually, I saw your Facebook post the other day of somebody who said you do too much percussion. Um, I think a lot of us would disagree with that. What are some ways that you kind of incorporate the percussion section as an educator to, to keep them engaged? Well, I think the biggest thing is that I, you know, keeping in mind, you know, my main instrument is percussion, or as you know, as I like to tell people, I are a percussionist. Sure. You know, um, but the, uh, the I think the big thing is that I recognize the percussion section for what it is, which is a completely separate choir from the woodwinds and the brass. Um, if you look at a lot of what I would call um, standard band literature you're going to see that the percussion is not treated like its own choir. Um, it's treated as um, just kind of additional voices for either the brass or woodwinds. You know, the mallets uh, typically tend to, you know, get paired with the woodwinds or whatever the melodic voice might be. Yeah. Um, and then you also have, you know, the battery percussion or whatever that tends to mimic or at least be closely related to the harmonic background rhythm. Yeah. Uh, things like that. And with the occasional effect. Um, for me, I like to try to score the percussion a little bit more soloistically and a little bit more uniquely um, because it just adds to the overall texture. It adds to the, um, the excitement of the works. Um, plus, you know, the, uh, the idiomatic nature of percussion is completely different from winds. So like what wind players can do, you know, might be a little bit, you know, challenging for percussion, but then what percussion can do you know, wind, wind instruments would either have great difficulty doing or can't do at all. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing I like to do is I like to um, put parts on the mallets where like the left hand might be parked on a note or is moving around somewhere while the right hand is playing other things. So you get this kind of jumping effect, which is easy for percussion. Yeah. Uh, would not be easy if you're constantly interval jumping on winds. Yeah. So I think, I think just recognizing the different, um, qualities of the instruments and what is, what is easy for them and what is not, uh, you know, really goes a long way. Not to mention the fact that um, it just, you know, if you're thinking in terms of choirs, I just think it makes you a better composer because it's, it opens up more possibilities for kind of orchestral scoring, you know, more, what, by which I mean more color specific scoring. Uh, one thing I try to do in my works is to make sure that it's not like full band all the time, because to me as a listener, that gets boring. So yeah. I want to make sure that there are moments of very specific color in my pieces and percussion is a great way to do that. Yeah. Awesome, man. I, 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 wait, as when you were a percussionist in band, did you feel like your director gave you enough time? Um, like, did, did you feel engaged in rehearsals? Oh yes, absolutely. Director did? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Our, our, um, which we, we had a pretty good percussion section 
And so since we were a strength of the band, we tended to be you know shown off quite a bit. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, he was really good about you know even on moments where like they might be working on something that was a little less percussion percussion intensive. Um, the assistant director would take us and either work on technique or or we would uh, do a percussion ensemble. So yeah, we we were constantly engaged and thought of, and so I think that you know that definitely bled into the way that I view how band should be because I think you know if you get directors who come from programs where the percussion were allowed to be static and passive much of the time, then that's just kind of an ingrained um, you know expectation that they have. Yeah. Like, this is normal. Um, when just because something is quote unquote normal doesn't mean it should be. Mm -hmm. And I think that goes back a little bit to student leadership. You know, if you don't have that assistant director and there's a part of the music you're working on and the percussion can be are in this passive spot, you can send them and go work on technique with that, with that student leader, um, you know, bringing back to what you said. So, right. But the big thing is, you know, percussion were not made to just sit around in band class. Yeah. You know? Yeah, all, all of our students should be engaged and learning at all times. That's something I, I try to be really intentional about. Um, but but yeah, I, uh, I really appreciate that answer. Um, one last question for you here. I was on your website today just trying to do a little bit of research and I saw uh, maybe I'm late to the party, but you have a, a publishing company called Randall Standards Music. And it just seems like the most innovative thing ever. I mean, you get you allow directors to make copies and there are practice tracks of the music. Can you talk a little bit about the way that you're kind of changing the game? Uh, sure. So uh, we established Randall Standards Music uh, back at the end of 2019 going into 2020. Um, the biggest thing with that is I just feel like I'm at a point in my career where I wanted to take a little bit more control of the direction my music was going. Um, and so, you know, this was the outgrowth of that. Um, and with that, you know, I, as you mentioned, I'm able to do things that I wanted to do, um, that I think are just common sense because the model for most of the music publishing industry right now is the same model that was in place in 1970. Um, you know, in terms of what people can or cannot do with music, but we are living in a different world. We're living in the internet age. We're living in the digital age. Things are just different now. Um, so what we do is with our pieces, we treat the purchase of our pieces as a license. So like if a school buys one of our pieces, they have licensed themselves to use this piece. And so they can make copies, they can share with their students digitally. The one thing they cannot do is they cannot share with a third party. Okay. So like, you know, school A buys it, they cannot share it with school B. And yeah. don't get me wrong, I mean, I hope this won't make me sound like a jerk, but like if we were able to find a situation where that happened, we would totally sue them. No, and, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and, and when because it's explicitly spelled out in our agreements. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, um, but you know, that's not the goal. Like, that. I'm not trying to trick people. Um, but you know, it's it's just you know, I, I think we need to change with the world we're living in. Also, another thing that we're really happy um, about, like you said, with the practice tracks, we don't necessarily do that with all of our pieces. Um, but especially this last year, with everybody being so virtual with COVID and everything. Um, we just wanted to create tracks uh, that would make it easier for directors to put things together. Because, for example, we knew that they may, if the kids weren't even allowed to be at school, they may or may not have percussion instruments, they may not have whatever. So we provided practice tracks and backing tracks to help fill this in for virtual bands. And also, you know, even for live performance, like if there's a smaller instrumentation, but they, they really want the rest of those percussion sounds, then this is something we can totally do. Um, you know, there, 
it's one thing that a lot of band directors don't like to talk about, but I think it's becoming more and more common is that we do technically have a fourth um, family in the concert band now, and that is electronics and it's not going away. It's, and, and it's, to me, it's exciting because it's not necessarily going to replace the other instruments, but we can learn how to use it to enhance what we're doing, how to make it more exciting and to make it more modern and relevant for our players. Awesome. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. That's amazing. And by the way, the cover art on all your pieces is, is very cool. Well, thank you. Um, I do not do the art myself, like as far as drawing it, uh, but I, I do the uh, layouts and everything. Like I select the artwork and, and do yeah. that. Um, I would like to get an opportunity to actually illustrate them sometime because I, I do have a background in visual art and I like doing that. The big thing is just finding time. Right. Uh, yeah. Time, time is very fleeting and you, you have to kind of focus on your strengths. I, I mean, I feel like I'm a really good composer. I'm just an okay artist. So yeah. I just know, I know where my strengths are. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. I have one final thing, super quick. It's called a rapid fire session. I'm just going to sure. ask you like seven completely random questions. Just want you to just tell me the first thing that pops into your head. All right. Will do. All right. Here we go. Crunchy or smooth peanut butter? Oh, crunchy. No doubt. Um, what's your favorite amusement park? Favorite amusement park? Disney World. There is no comparison. Oh. <laughs> Okay. Beach vacation or camping in the woods? Uh, beach vacation. Okay. I am a beach bum. Beach bum. Got it. Um, Lord of the Rings or Star Wars? Star Wars. Big Star Wars fan? Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, what's one of your hobbies? One of my hobbies? Uh, weightlifting. Weightlifting. Uh, big weightlifter. Yes. I saw I saw a post that, that you do 90 burpees a day. Is that right? Uh, 100. 100. Yes, oh, my gosh. Wow, that's incredible. Um, okay, favorite quote? Favorite quote is by Wayne Gretzky. It is, you miss 100% of the shots you never take. I love that. I love that. And uh, last question. For dinner, you have three options. Which one are you going with? Tacos, pizza, or burgers? Burgers. Without All a right. doubt. I love a good hamburger. There it is. Randall Standridge. Oh my gosh, man. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I really, truly appreciate it. I can't, I can't say that enough. No problem. Thank you for having me on the podcast.